Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And as part of our July Summer Lady Explorer series, we're going to look at overland explorers today. The women who crossed deserts, climbed mountains, went into the jungles and studied plants, or just, you know, went to Boston and studied plants. Women who traveled mostly by themselves to discover things that they probably wouldn't have discovered sitting in their parlors in Victorian England. Yeah, and in our introductory episode to the series on explorers, we talked a lot about sort of the masculine construct of the explorer hero and how in the 19th century, when women really started leaving their homes, not too many of them, but some of them started following in these male explorers' footsteps, how they had to fight even for the right to leave their homes in their dresses and petticoats and set forth. And also they had to fight for recognition as well. Right. And we talked a little bit about uh, the golden age of exploration in our first episode. And that was really the 19th century in this Victorian era of men going out, discovering things. They were considered heroes. It was a manly pursuit. And I mean, you know, I can't blame women for wanting to get in on that, wanting to they're basically seeing what these men are doing and wanting to be a part of that discovery process. But for the most part, when governments and militaries, for example, sent men overseas, abroad, wherever to basically report back about cultures, about plant life, about animal life, they they were only sending men because it was a manly pursuit. It wasn't the type of work that women were supposed to do. And so women, their viewpoints, their thoughts, their opinions, their reports were kind of suppressed. And when it comes to the motivations for exploring, when we're talking about the past in the 19th century, in that golden age, uh, it's really motivated by things like economic development, military operations, and trade. There were a lot of very selfish reasons for going out and exploring. Whereas today, we think of exploration more in the sense of STEM fields, of learning more about how the natural world works in order to apply it in more altruistic and scientific and technological ways to improve not just our lives, uh, our lives being our Western lives, but also improve the lives of, you know, people living in indigenous cultures, much unlike how they would have been treated in the golden age of exploration when they were simply seen as oddities. Uh, we probably took a lot of land. Well, not probably. We took a lot of land from them, uh, took a lot of relics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about the beginning of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, exactly. I mean, we sent Indiana Joneses into these places, into these countries, and they were just like, oh, hey, look at this really cool like golden statue thing. I'll just take that because it belongs in a museum. Yeah, and, and if you want it legitimized, then you should put it behind a display case that white, well-to-do people can see and appreciate on a weekend. Right, because how will anyone ever believe it exists if it stays in your temple? Yeah, and for that reason, for the next 90 minutes of this podcast, (laughs) we're just going to play the audio from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think there might be some copyright issues, but fingers crossed. (laughs) 
I have a feeling George Lucas might be a tad litigious, so let's let's keep going with our Lady Explorer theme. Right. And so so in in the vein of what we were just talking about using Indiana Jones as a great example, um basically around this time there was the feeling that there was so much out there in the world that they didn't know, but that no proper study of anatomy, of disease, of ecology, of evolutionary relationships. None of this stuff could be complete without sending people out into the world to discover it. And you also have to keep in mind that a lot of these fields are fledgling fields of study. And so you kind of couldn't even have these focus areas, these areas of study, without sending these people out to discover what was even out there to begin with. But... As a lot of people have pointed out in a lot of the things we read, women's voices were pretty much lost. And it seems like from our research, Caroline, it's almost as though those lost voices of the golden age of exploration are now experiencing maybe a a resurgence in this 21st century age of exploration. Because you do have women like Milbury Polk, whom we talked about a lot in our introductory episode, um, who wrote an entire book about women explorers called Women of Discovery, a celebration of intrepid women who explored the world. You have women like Polk and others who are writing books, who are starting organizations, who are shining a light on those unsung heroines of exploration, which is really cool. Right, because whereas it seems like the history of women explorers is one giant cycle of unfair, you know, they weren't allowed to have the same types of educational opportunities, which meant they weren't taken seriously, which meant they weren't allowed in the field, which meant their voices were lost. They didn't receive funding. Right, and so now it's kind of, the cycle is kind of going in in reverse, in the other direction, because you have women like Milbury Polk, who is and was an explorer, and who then is trying to shed more light on women who have come before us. And so then it becomes this snowball effect of, well, the more women we can bring to our consciousness today, then maybe the more women who will be inspired by them. Yeah, and when you look back at those earliest women explorers, they did have some characteristics in common, which usually revolved around uh, higher levels of socioeconomic privilege. Right. These people, whether they were male or female going out exploring, tended to be very highly educated and they had the financial means to fund their expeditions and then to publish those findings. That was very important because while you could go out and discover some things or paint some plants or whatnot, you know, if you couldn't then disperse that information to people back home, nobody really paid attention. And Polk also highlights in her book uh, one difference that she noticed between male patterns of exploration at that time versus women's pattern of exploration in that because women were so often ignored by these larger institutions and it wasn't as necessary as it might be for a male explorer to pick a dot on a map and find the quickest route to get there. Instead, women sort of meandered a bit more. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, she talks about, you know, especially since men were often subsidized by groups, whether that was a, a military type backing or a state funded type of thing. Women often didn't have that type of backing. And so if they were going to go exploring, 
they didn't quite have that same type of pressure. And maybe pressure is the wrong word, but it, there was more of a push, an internal push that they wanted to go discover these things. And so a lot of their travel logs and whatnot. And we talked about this in our first episode as far as like modern day travelogues for women are often expected to be about a personal, you know, internal journey, whereas men are more like action and what I saw and what I did and what I ate. Um, back in this era, too, women's travelogues tended to be like their journals where they talked about what they experienced sort of in a more personal tone. Well, and also the fact that when you consider how that internal drive at the time would have to be so strong and so specific because these women didn't really have many female role models at all doing what they wanted to do and that it doing what they wanted to do also required violating very strict gender norms at the time uh it, it makes their journeys all the more fascinating and it's not just um the lack of financial support in terms of being affiliated with scientific institutions or wealthy patrons, etc. Mona Dimash, um, who was writing about uh, geography and sort of the gendered intersections of the development of that field, pointed out how even in socializing, when it comes to geography, you have like these field workers, obviously these male field workers going out and they have this financial support. But then it was even more of an elite club because of the all male club atmosphere of the Royal Geographic Society in England and the American Geographical Society in the U.S. And we talked about that, too, in our introduction episode, talking about how the Explorers Club was all male until the 1980s. So you just have all of these kind of tight male circles and women just <laughs> meandering Around them. Yeah. On the outskirts. Oh. <laughs> well, um, Domash, I mean, her paper is really, really interesting. It's, it's a great look at just the gendered aspects of exploration through the lens of geography specifically. But I mean, she talks about how, I mean, you want to talk about a cycle. She talks about how women were basically the victims of the society that they were a part of. They couldn't get that financial backing that we talked about or the proper education to be explorers. And then as a result, they weren't taken seriously because they weren't official. And so Domash talks about how their views were often ignored because their the stuff that they wrote, the activities that they participated in did not accord with the standards of scientific geography. She wrote, Victorian women explorers could not escape the context in which they lived. And those contexts shaped not only their outlook on personal matters and social networks, but they operated in very material ways as well by limiting the resources and support networks available to women in their travels. And so it's for this reason that I said a few minutes ago that one common thread among a lot of these Victorian women travelers is that they were wealthy. I mean, they came from means that gave them good educations, but also financed their trip on their own. They didn't need the backing of, say, a wealthy patron. Um, so when you have women like Mary Kingsley, who we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, Mary Gaunt, Isabella Bird, who we mentioned in our intro episode, and Marianne North, who we'll also talk about more in a few minutes, these women were, these women could afford to explore. In other words, right. And so because these women had the appropriate means, they they weren't going to let it stop them that they weren't 
sort of allowed into the professional circles of explorers. They realize that, oh, I can go out and do field work. I can go explore the land, whether it's around me or overseas, just as any man could do, because, hey, look, I have the resources to do it. And so we've been talking about... Uh, you know, women not having enough funding, and so their voices weren't taken seriously. They were considered amateurs. And as exploration, particularly land exploration, geographical studies, as these things became more professionalized, they became more masculinized. And so women's voices, since they weren't quote-unquote professionals, they were definitely suppressed. As all these scientific fields flourished, there was this giant drive to make everything like super scientific and cut and dry. But who defined what was cut and dry and scientific? Well, it was the men folk. And they thought that women just were sort of silly and amateurs who couldn't be taken seriously. I mean, take it from one high-ranking English statesman who maybe wasn't such a fan of women in the field. Yeah, his name was George Curzon, and he was a viceroy of India at the turn of the 20th century, who said, quote, their sex and training render them equally unfitted for exploration and the genus of professional female globe trotters with which America has lately familiarized us is one of the horrors of the latter end of the 19th century. Right. And so dudes who are armed with this attitude, who have this attitude that women are just silly and they're frittering their time away and they're just they're just globetrotters. Well, of course, you would want to exclude non-serious globetrotting silly people from joining your super formal geographical society. But there were a few standouts whose accomplishments were so incredible. Even men like George Curzon couldn't deny them a place in their elite circles. So, for instance, a name that you might remember from our introductory episode, Harriet Chalmers Adams, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, really established herself as one of the foremost explorers, male or female, In the world, or at least we should say in the Western world, she really made herself an expert on Latin America. She was born in California and she rode on horseback through most of Latin America. Yeah, she ended up uh, basically producing so much information uh, for, quote unquote, back home that she was really valued by government and business uh, interests alike in, in academic circles. And she was one of the first American women elected to membership in the Royal Geographic Society of London, which is like such a big deal because, you know, I, as, as we'll get into further in this series, especially when we talk about Antarctic explorers, uh, the British were not like super excited about women joining their ranks. No. And no offense to UK listeners, but my goodness, <laughs> Britain was quite a holdout in terms of gender parity in exploration. Um, but we've, we've established that it usually costs women a lot of money to travel. It still does. It's not like it's cheap to explore. But um, back then, they had to be independently financed. But there were some other interesting uh, demographic similarities that you see among a lot of the names of this time. For instance, a lot of women travelers would have been in middle-aged and they were often unmarried. There's actually, Caroline speaking of which, there was one book 
<laughs> that I came across in our research called Spinsters Abroad, <laughs> all about Victorian women travelers, because many of them were spinsters. They were unmarried women who some of whom were like, I don't need marriage. I don't want marriage. I'm going to explore. Um, and others whom society was like, no, you just you were unmarriageable. Well, it's so funny. I mean, I think that's so funny to call someone like an explorer, an independent, incredible, brilliant woman who wants to go explore the world, a spinster. You know, because spinster, the connotation there is that she's just like sitting at home alone in the dark with her cats. Hey, let's take back spinster. okay? (laughs) let's reclaim spinster right here, right now. Yeah. And as we mentioned, a lot of these women had family members who were involved in some type of exploration, too. And so there, you know, I I can't hammer home enough how important it is now or then for boys or girls to have people in their lives who can inspire them. And so they saw these people and their families doing this and they were like, oh, well, I have a dream as well and I'm going to go pursue it. And so they ended up a lot of these women sort of removing themselves from the shackles of these institutions that sort of oppressed other women of their age. They weren't going to necessarily be married, or if they were, they certainly weren't going to let it stop them from going and traveling. Well, and it was that outsider spinster status that kind of made them good observers of other cultures, species, terrain, just depending on where they were going and what they were hoping to discover. Yeah. And I mean, as far as discovery and, and women traveling outside of the norms, you know, we, we touched on in our introductory episode the fact that pilgrimage, if we're talking about women land explorers, pilgrimage was the main way that women could kind of get away from home, go see other lands. Um, and so Milbury Polk talks a lot about this in her book. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, it, okay, so it was strange for women to travel, especially like in the Middle Ages, definitely not an accepted thing outside of gender norms, not considered safe or a good idea in general. But a lot of the women who went traveling to distant lands for pilgrimage purposes ended up being declared saints by the Catholic Church. So... I think that's an interesting division between women who are considered outside the norm versus women who are traveling for the purpose of religion. They're considered not only okay, but awesome. Well, I think it makes sense because, and this is an entire conversation for another time, perhaps a podcast that has been requested many times on women and religion, but I feel like religious devotion and piety fits so nicely Mm -hmm. into the feminine box. Yeah, especially if, if those very feminine religious women are going overseas to like try to convert other people that are considered backwards into their religion. Right. Yeah, that's that's the uncomfortable background noise for all of this Victorian era exploration history is that it is very much steeped in uh, racism mm-hmm. and uh, white centric Western-centric views of the world. Yeah, both men and women are definitely guilty of that in this era, for sure. But, I mean, if you want to go way back and talk about Christian pilgrims, Byzantine Empress Helena, who died in 328, that's 328, no one, um, she, along with her son, Emperor Constantine, traveled numerous times to Palestine. They went to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Sinai, where she ended up founding several churches. 
But so once the floodgates kind of opened as far as religious pilgrimage went, where, okay, you're a woman, you only have one avenue for for traveling and exploring distant lands, and that's religious pilgrimage, going to the Holy Land. Once those floodgates were opened, uh, the local populations weren't always excited about it. And talking about this in the introduction to her book, Milbury Polk writes about one irate Egyptian ascetic who apparently told a wealthy Roman woman who was on a pilgrimage to Egypt. Uh, she wrote that he decried her and her kind who threatened to, quote, turn the sea into a thoroughfare with women coming to see me. So, you know, I mean, I think that's an illustration of how sisters are doing it for themselves and they're getting to travel and explore other lands far away from home and sort of shed some of their societal norms in the process. But it was kind of at the expense of a lot of locals who had to deal with them. But thankfully, there were plenty of plucky women out there who did not let what irate locals thought of them stop them from wanting to explore. And this is such a such an important thing for you know not just the lives of these women but for our lives as well because as Courtney Stevens put it so perfectly in a TED Ed presentation on some early women explorers she said the desire to see for oneself not only changes the course of human knowledge but it also changes the very idea of what is possible and that gets to the heart of why exploration is important and why we wanted to do this series as well. And let's now get, though, into some more names of women you probably haven't heard of who did some pretty incredible things back then and also now, who are, who are exploring now, to help change the course of human knowledge and change our ideas of what is possible. Yeah, one woman that really stuck out to me who definitely was not a part of the golden age of exploration during the Victorian era, during the 19th century, was uh, some really cool kind of B.A. Uh, Viking lady, uh, Gudreder. Perhaps that's how we pronounce her name. Gudreder, yes. This Viking woman, Gudreder, whose Viking last name is so challenging to pronounce that even the Internet didn't have a guide for us. So we're just going to call her Gudreder because her accomplishments really lend her the credibility to only go by one name. <laughs> like Cher. Yeah, she's like Beyonce. She, yeah, she's like the Cher of Viking exploration. Because, so get this, in the late 900s, she travels to Greenland from Iceland and then... She heads on over to North America with her husband, where she had her son. Her husband dies, and she's like, oh, too bad, so sad. <laughs> she remarries back in Greenland, and then they led another expedition to North America, where she had a second son there. So, you, you know all those stories from European and American history about how the trips, you know, back and forth, weren't so easy. She didn't hop on like a carnival cruise <laughs> and go and where the, you know, the bathroom breaks down and everyone's like, oh no. No, she was doing this like back and forth at a time when it was an incredibly treacherous journey to make. Yeah. And, and she was doing it alongside some big burly men. Her husband, her first husband anyway, was one of the sons of Eric the Red. 
And I think the brother of uh, Leif Erikson. Yeah, that was her brother-in-law. Yeah. Oh, Leif. I mean, no big deal. She's just like Viking royalty. But so after her, I think it's her second son, after he grows up. So so Christianity has been introduced. They are Christian now. Um, She ends up making a pilgrimage to Rome after that son grows up and gets married. She meets the Pope. Again, (laughs) no big deal for a good reader. She ends up retiring to the church where her son, her son built and starts to live life as a nun. She just set her own path. She totally set her own path. I will say when I was reading her biography, the end felt like a real plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) I did not anticipate Gudrider settling down to the life of a nun. Um, Yeah, I'm picturing Xena Warrior Princess just being like, ah, here's my sword. I'll be a nun. (laughs) You're wearing a habit. Yeah. Yeah, good reader. But I, mean, I guess there weren't like so many options in the early by then thousands. <laughs> by the early thousands. By the yeah. early thousands. What, what else are you going to do? Well, now we're going to take a giant leap in history to the 1800s to talk about Marianne North, who was, <laughs> I feel like she's kind of the epitome of the Victorian spinster explorer. Yeah. Oh, she hated marriage. She, I think she also kind of hated men. Yeah, she detested the idea of getting married. She called it a terrible experiment that turned women into a sort of upper servant. And she actually really just preferred to hang out with her father, whose passion for botany and travel inspired her. And when he died, it left her both independent, because she was no longer hanging out with him, but it also left her wealthy, which is key And through her travels, she became the preeminent botanical artist of the late Victorian period. And she powered her way wearing Victorian garb. She didn't trade out her skirts for knickerbockers. She actually went to some of the world's most inhospitable terrains. She hit every single continent, in fact, except for Antarctica, on her journeys to find rare and beautiful plants that she then sat down and oil painted. Mm -hmm. And there was someone talking about how it was so significant that she oil painted rather than watercolor, which was a far more feminine art form at the time because uh, it lent a... Uh, just a deeper richness visually to her art and also helped ensure that they stayed in prime condition for longer. Yeah, that they would last that, you know, she's if she's going to these tropical locations to paint these incredible multicolored, beautiful plants, watercolor, you know, humidity, not so good for water based pigment. I would I would think I mean, I'm not a painter. And what I mean, one key thing about her art. So she was self-taught as an adult. She wanted to be, I think, a singer, but it's like a life of the stage was beneath her family position or something. So she ended up taking up painting, realized she loved it, you know, it paints, paints things with oils. Um, and what was key about her painting is that unlike a lot of the male explorers and male botanists who went traveling and took specimens and brought them back, she didn't dig them up. She painted them. She would just plop down with her her easel and her paints and paint them. Well, and as she was a woman of wealth and had a good family name, when she went on all these journeys, she often arrived with letters of introduction and would have had, you know, wealthy hookups to stay with and dine with and rub elbows with. But she really tried to avoid that as much as possible. She preferred to just traipse around on her own and paint 
her paintings. Yeah, and the cool thing about her paintings, which are now on display in England in her own gallery that she pushed to have built, um, they're displayed really interestingly. They're all kind of smushed together like a big Pinterest board on the wall uh, to, to throw a modern reference in there. And they're all grouped according to country, which is really cool, too. But she didn't. She didn't paint in a super, like, quote-unquote, scientific way. I mean, if we're talking about women going their own way, doing their own thing, and not really traveling and reporting back like the men did, she didn't just paint the single flower or the single leaf or plant against a white background, as was the scientific habit of the time. She really painted the plant in its whole ecosystem. So you might see the plant or the flower, but it would be on the bush, in the field, so you would still see everything that was around it and how it was interacting with its ecosystem. And in the process, she discovered a number of plant species, many of which are named in her honor, including, just for an example, uh, Miss North's pitcher plant, and even the genus name, Northea, which is part of a plant family of evergreen trees and shrubs. And through her paintings, she also showed Europeans for the first time because Google image did not exist. <laughs> uh, but she showed them plants they had never seen before, such as the giant pitcher plant of Borneo and the African torch lily. So she very much educated the public through her exploration. And I like that she didn't bring back all those specimens. It's like mm-hmm. she went in painted and then left without a trace. Yeah. She left a small, a minimal footprint, probably in the shape of a very uncomfortable Victorian high-heeled shoe. (laughs) And speaking of botanists slash explorers, I also want to mention Inez Enriqueta Julieta Mejia, Who's, who has a beautiful name that I'm hopefully doing justice to. Um, she came around a little bit later than North, um, and she was focused on South and Central America and Alaska. And so in 1925, she set out on a series of journeys to remote locations around there and collected 150,000 botanical specimens. And she identified more than 500 new species of plants many of which were named in her honor. So she was more of the go and collect the specimen, bring it back. Not so much of an artist, but nonetheless an important explorer to know. Yeah, and I mean, I think about, I think what's so neat about Marion North, I mean, being such a product of her time, is that she's exactly the type of woman from this era that Domash was writing about in terms of going her own way, doing what she was doing for her. I mean, she just loved to paint, and so she's sort of fell into this love of plants and exploration from her father combined with her own love of painting to really go about this scientific pursuit in her own very unique way. Well, and the fact that she was focused on botany is significant, too, because unlike, say, geography, which was a field, an emerging field at the time, very much exclusive to men, botany, not so surprisingly, was really the only hard science considered female appropriate because it's flowers flowers well of course we would want to study flowers it's it's we we could learn to arrange them in vases for our sitting rooms where we stay (laughs) right exactly that was my victorian woman (laughs) well okay so one woman that we have to to mention we have to mention and who was focused on a little bit of a 
more masculine science or sciences plural is Gertrude Bell. Now we could do like 15 hours worth of podcasts on Gertrude Bell because she's so fascinating and accomplished so much in her life. But we actually don't have to because stuff you missed in history class, our sister podcast has already done a two-parter on Gertrude Bell. That's right. So if you really want to dig into her bio, you can do that. But in the context of exploration, Yes, we must discuss her. (laughs) Yeah, because she was an archaeologist, a linguist, a mountaineer. She traveled to the desert and helped form what is now Iraq. I mean, this this woman had a hand in a lot of stuff. And what's interesting, if we're talking about forming your own path and all that stuff, she also was one woman who did not get married. She wasn't really considered marriage material because she was so highly uh, educated at Oxford. So she ended up teaching herself Persian, hanging out with her uncle in Iran, who uh, was uh, a British official over there, developing this interest in the Middle Eastern region and traveling all over the place. Yeah, the fact that she was the first woman to graduate with a modern history degree from Oxford <laughs> essentially just banished her from the marriage market. They were like, oh, whoa, no, 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 not not you, Gertrude. You have too many things to talk about, Gertrude. Well, and, and I also want to mention, too, her mountaineering passion, because this is also a great uh, snapshot of women exploring at the time, because... In 1899, she made her first major ascent over 13,000 feet in the French Alps. But there were no proper clothes for female climbers back then. So she took off her skirt and just kept climbing in her underclothes until she reached the summit. I love it. Yeah. In her underclothes. In her undercarriage clothes. <laughs> and in 1901, after a few more climbs, she ended up becoming the first person to climb all the peaks of the Engelhorner range in the Swiss Alps. And during that time, she spent two weeks wearing a blue climbing suit with pants. Oh, my gosh, pants. Although she always changed back into her skirt at base camp. And of the nine peaks, she was the first person to summit seven of them. And she even had a mountaintop named after her, Gertrude Spitzer. Gertrude Spitzer. Let's climb it, Caroline. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing pants, though. But she wasn't just interested in climbing mountains and just hanging out with her uncle in Iran. So in 1915, she's in Cairo at the time, where she becomes the first woman officer to be employed by British military intelligence. And it's as a British spy that she then goes back to the Middle East and starts doing some scouting around. She does, and uh, she ends up having a huge impact over there. Um, but not everybody was super excited about her participation. Uh, diplomatic advisor Sir Mark Sykes put it thusly, Confound the silly, chattering windbag of conceited, gushing, flat-chested, man-woman, globe-trotting, rump-wagging, blethering ass. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot to say about her. And it's funny that like gendered stuff gets in there. He calls her a man woman and flat chested. And then you've got like, yeah, you've got the dismissive stuff, the globe trotting rump wagging. Uh, She's a windbag. She talks so much like God forbid women talk. So but generally, I mean, generally, she was admired and appreciated. And I mean, it's obvious because in Iraq in the 1920s, 
She's this powerful official of the British administration in Baghdad after World War One, and she helped ensure that an Arab state was founded from the three Ottoman provinces of Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra, but helped ensure that it would stay too weak to be independent of Britain. Yeah, she essentially drew the borderlines of Iraq. And so if her name is ringing a bell right now, Gertrude Bell, ding, ding, it might be because her name has been coming up recently in some news articles about the current unrest in Iraq because, you know, I mean, this was a state that was drawn up strategically to sort of pit different groups and tribes against each other to ensure that they would never become more powerful than Britain. So yet again, we have to reference sort of the the uncomfortable undercurrent of um, political nastiness and white people mucking stuff up. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I mean, in all this, she did make Baghdad her permanent home and she did help to organize elections and she did help to write a constitution. And in 1920, she was the first person to write a white paper called the Review of the Civil Administration of Mesopotamia. And a white paper is basically like a really long informational booklet about a place. Yeah, uh, she kind of makes me feel like I need to do more with my life. (laughs) I don't know. But the desert is so hot. It doesn't have to be in the desert, Carol. Okay, cool. Okay. (laughs) Well, in the last big explorer of yore that we really want to focus on for this episode is one Alexandra David Neal. And it's like we've been kind of moving eastward on our, our map here because we had Gertrude Bell in the Middle East. And now we're going to have Alexander David Neal go into the deep east. Yeah, I mean, this is a woman who lived to be just shy of her 101st birthday. And so in true in her true middle age, at 55, she became the first European woman to reach Tibet's forbidden capital. And she remains the most accurate, extensive source on hidden Buddhist practices of this really what is sort of vanishing Eastern world, but she didn't start out that way. She actually began her career as an opera singer. And then her voice broke, and she was like, well, now what am I going to do? And so she became a strongly feminist writer, because of course. Naturally. And uh, it was through her writing and research that her interest in Eastern philosophy really matured, and that planted the seed for this harrowing journey that she made over the Trans-Himalayas to Lhasa. Now, in order to get around and actually avoid getting arrested by British officials, she disguised herself as a Tibetan man by wearing a massive yak fur coat and a necklace made of animal skulls. Yeah, that was in uh, the winter of 1924. And she went with uh, one of her adopted sons and, yeah, managed to just disguise herself as a beggar. No, no big deal. No threat here. Definitely not a Western woman. Um, and three years later in 1927, her book, My Journey to Lhasa, which was published in New York, London and Paris, became an instant classic of travel and adventure. People couldn't get enough of this exotic story. Yeah. And she ended up, uh, along with her adopted son, writing two dozen books on Eastern themes. Um, and that one journey to Lhasa was by no means the only journey that she took. I mean, she spent so much time uh, in Tibet and in other areas in uh, the Far East. Yeah. And we could go on and on and on with other stories of other women 
doing incredible things around the world. Unfortunately, we only have time in this podcast just to do a survey of explorers past and present. And since we've talked so much about women of the past, now let's talk about what women are doing exploration-wise today. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of, you know, the East, um, we have Christina Lee, who's an American bioarchaeologist who is exploring diversity through skeletons. She combines physical anthropology and archaeology to study human remains that are millennia old. And she talks about her own personal experience, what drove her, which is feeling um, as an Asian student in Texas, feeling out of place. She says that she wanted to explore diversity, that it's at the core of her archaeological research and to search for those sort of diverse beginnings through Dental anthropology. I mean, this woman is incredible. Saying that looking at dental, dental anthropology can reveal everything from population origin and history to migration and intermarriage. And she's doing a lot of this research in China. And so she was saying that she hopes her discoveries can give the people of China a greater sense of their own cultural identity and past. And then for another example of a modern STEM explorer, we have Nalini Nadkarni, whose specialty is studying tree canopies in rainforests in Central and South America. And it's fascinating. She uh, she gave a TED Talk on what she has learned from the tree canopies because it's kind of like how we don't think of all of the things you could learn from a tooth mm-hmm. like Christina Lee is doing. Nalini, who grew up climbing trees and loving to climb trees, essentially climbs trees for a living in order to investigate what kind of biodiversity is living up high in those treetops. And it's fascinating. I mean, the kind of mosses and insects and all of these things that support these very fragile ecosystems. And so obviously this is linked to ecological preservation. And um, just to think, though, of exploration and tree climbing as a modern day profession that has a positive impact on our daily lives is so incredible. Yeah. But I mean, I think you just hit on something really important about modern day explorers, whereas in the golden age of exploration, you had a lot of people not necessarily out for themselves, but out for the glory of their empire back home, whether that was America or Britain. I think now you have a lot of people, a lot of women in particular, who are out exploring for the purpose of shedding light on global problems, whether that's um, ecological problems, environmental issues, or whether that's food pr- uh, problems throughout the world. You have a lot of people out there today trying to shed the light on tragedies that need our attention. Yeah, and that's one of the aims of Kira Salak, who is an incredible traveler. She's traveled alone to almost every continent, and she really focuses on going to remote and sometimes dangerous, outright dangerous locations. And she's been profiled in the National Geographic and all sorts of other places. Um, because, for instance, I mean, she was the first woman to traverse Papua New Guinea. Uh, she also biked 700 miles from Alaska to the Arctic Ocean. She also biked 700 miles from Alaska to the Arctic Ocean. She's a fearless woman, yeah. in other words. 
Right. And she's a fearless woman with goals, she said, to reveal situations no one else is covering, like slavery in Timbuktu and genocide in eastern Congo. She said that these tragedies are very emotionally difficult to witness. But if by shedding light on them, I can improve even one person's life, I feel it's worth the risk. Well, and at one point, too, uh, where she was is escaping me at the moment. But she was kidnapped by some locals and had to escape. She actually made an escape. And she was talking about how that kind of danger is terrifying, yes, but when she encounters obstacles like that, getting through them only empowers her to keep exploring further. Right. And she told a story about, um, I can't remember which river she was traveling down, but the women alongside the river were just cheering her on and chanting for her, you know, because she might raise the eyebrows of the men in the local populations that she travels past. But uh, the women are definitely on her side. And then, I mean, continuing the theme of women out there exploring to benefit the global population at large, Alexandra Cousteau, yes, that Cousteau, she's the granddaughter of Jacques Cousteau, is a social environmental advocate and one of National Geographic's emerging explorers who looks at all different kinds of media opportunities and partnerships between different diverse groups to create platforms for emerging environmental leaders. So Cousteau travels all over the world to highlight environmental issues. Her latest initiative, Blue Legacy, for instance, was created to inspire people to take action on water issues around the world and to help spark some dialogue on climate change, water availability to various populations throughout the world, et cetera, et cetera. So those are just some names who, instead of going out into the world, just taking specimens to inform knowledge, not that stuff like that is not important. It obviously is critical to scientific research. But these are uh, just a few women who are traveling the world to help everyone else. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the biggest takeaways from, and, and we're only focusing in this episode, too, on overland exploration, and there are so many other names, too, that we could have talked about. Um, but when it comes to just the, the giant umbrella of exploration, you know, the question from, we, when we're talking about the 19th century, is, uh, why? well, why would they go explore? Well, because they had everything to discover. Fast forward to today, same question. Well, why would you explore? Because we still have everything to discover. Mm-hmm. There's always something new to learn. So hopefully we can do our part to shed light on the women who are doing that and have done that and will do that in the future. So if you are an explorer, an adventurer, an outdoors person, um, if any of these names ring bells to you, we want to hear all of your exploration thoughts and stories etc. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook and like us while you're at it. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple letters here from our episode on YA fiction. And this one is from Rory, who writes, I wanted to comment on Time Editor Joel Stein's comments. I wanted to find an article that would put his statement into context. And fortunately, his opinion piece, Adults Should Read Adult Books, was just a Google search away. After reading his article, it should be said that moderation is the key. This is not a revolutionary idea. It's a cliche concept, but it's a true one and one that so many people seem to forget. 
Stein appears to take the side in which the world of higher art is one in which he believes people should aspire to. Even using such degrading sentences as the only thing more embarrassing than catching a guy on the plane looking at pornography on his computer is seeing a guy on the plane reading The Hunger Games. The only problem with the situation is when an individual, regardless of age or gender, refuses to step out of their comfort zone. There is a point in which someone should step up, as it were, and move to the next level of literature that may be considered more substantial. It's hard to argue that a novel by Suzanne Collins or John Green could match the prose or philosophical complexity of a novel written by, by Nabokov or Thomas Hardy. But then again, maybe our contemporary way of thinking just can't see it yet. However, another problem in this situation is the assumption that this person only reads books like The Hunger Games or Harry Potter. If that's the case, as was hinted in the previous paragraph, that is a problem just as it's a problem if someone only reads Victorian literature. It would be beneficial for any reader to move on to more challenging examples of literature just as it would be beneficial for someone who has already reached that next level to step down from their pedestal and give those supposed lesser writers a chance. They may be surprised. Look no further than Philip K. Dick, who used to be considered a pulp science fiction writer. To my knowledge, he became the first science fiction author whose works were collected in two volumes that were published by the Library of America, an organization that has collected the works of authors such as John Updike and Ernest Hemingway. Who is to say that decades from now, the works of John Green will not be published in similar collections? So thanks for your insights, Rory. Alrighty, I have a letter here from Mary. She says, I am a ninth grade English teacher at a high school in rural Wisconsin. The town in which I teach is very provincial, and as a result, the population is very homogenous, meaning the students are largely white, working class, or lower middle class kids. This being said, in order to help my students gain perspectives from all walks of life, regions, social classes, cultures, ethnicities, races, sexual orientations, etc., I use young adult lit. Yes, perhaps I should be teaching more classics, and please understand that I do, but as wonderful as Lord of the Flies or Great Expectations can be, they are usually only presenting limited viewpoints, usually white, straight, cisgendered males. Since my students do not have the means to travel the world and its people, in order to bring the world to them, I use Young Adult Lit. As you stated in your podcast, it's more representative of all people and therefore has helped my students gain new views on the world. Through Young Adult Lit, they are able to look at life through the eyes of someone with a severe disability and Terry Truman stuck in neutral, or experience high school in the shoes of a transgender teen in Julianne Peters' Luna, or understand the impact of sexual assault on women in Lori Hoss Anderson's Speak. Young Adult Lit has enabled me to foster a better understanding of the world with my students and helped instill an improved sense of empathy in them, much more so than a typical complex classic. This is not to say that classics have no place in secondary English language arts classes, but rather to say that Young Adult Lit is and should be placed alongside the literary canon as they both present important and needed aspects in education. So thank you, Mary. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, blog posts, videos, and every single one of our 500-plus podcasts, there's one place to go. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 